Well, good morning, ARC. Uh, it's good to see everybody this morning um, and to be worshiping Christ the King, our Lord, together. If you are visiting with us this morning, let me add another word of welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor Thabiti, one of the five pastors here at Anacostia River Church, uh, along with the entire church family. We want to say uh, we're glad that you've chosen to be with us this morning. We can't think of any place we'd rather you be. Uh, and we pray that already you've been encouraged in the things of the Lord. And uh, we pray that this morning as we come to God's Word, uh, you'd be encouraged by what God has said to us uh, in his word. I uh, want to say a, a congratulations to Miss Tansy. Uh, she's here with a new baby. Congratulations. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. And a congratulations to Lord and Wanda. Celebrated um, how many years? Where'd they go? 28 years on yesterday of marriage. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So many things to give God uh, praise for. Before we turn to God's Word this morning, uh, or as we get ready to turn to God's Word, uh, you might be helped if you've come this morning and you don't have a Bible or you've forgotten your Bible. You might be helped to follow us along in God's Word. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand this morning and one of these brothers will be sure to to get one to you there. Uh, Anybody need a Bible this morning? It's one to your left there, Jeff. All right. A couple folks in the back there. All right. Now, if you're getting the Bible this morning, you're borrowing a Bible this morning, and you don't have a Bible, um, you are not borrowing a Bible. We are giving you a Bible. We want you to have it. We want you to take it. That's our gift to you. Uh, go ahead and write your name in it. Uh, walk out with it, and don't feel like you're stealing anything. That's a, that's a gift, and we want you to read it and to hide it in your heart and to get to know the God uh, who spoke those very words. And so uh, we thank you for coming, and we pray that, that would be a, a blessing and an encouragement to you. Before we look into God's Word, uh, let me offer a brief word of prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, we have been in various ways speaking to you this morning, in prayer, in song. We've lifted up our voices to you and our hearts to you. And now, Father, we would that you would speak to us. That you would tell us what's on your mind. That you would tell us what we need for our lives and our souls. We don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. Your word is life. It is spirit. It is truth. It's living. It's active. And so we pray, Father, that you would now make your word to live in our hearts in a deeper way, a more profound way, as a consequence of considering it this morning. Be with us, O Lord, in power and in grace, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you've, you've arrived sort of partway through uh, a short series of sermons that we're doing, which we have called Remember Our Calling. Remember Our Calling. Now, the reason we've, we've sort of doing this series is to remind ourselves of some basic things that we are committed to as a, as a Christian congregation. And we want to do that now because we, we are actually a new congregation. We're just a little over a year old. Um, the people that you see here gathered this morning worshiping as a church family, they weren't here a year and a half ago. 
at least not in this church, at least not in this congregation. And so uh, you, you're sort of jumping into the stream of something that God has been doing uh, in our lives and in our community over the last year. And, and we are aware that it's really easy, as our brother Peter prayed earlier, it's really easy to drift. It's really easy to have set your eyes on something and then to kind of glance the other way. One of the things I learned in driver's ed many, many years ago, many white hairs ago, was that you got to keep your eye on the road. You have to look where you're going. And, and it's a funny thing that happens. If you drive for any length of time looking at things off to the side, there's a tendency to drift toward what you're looking at. We don't want to be those who drift. We want to be those who keep our eyes fixed on what God has called us to do. Now, we express that in a number of ways. One way that we express that as a church is just in our mission statement. Anacostia River Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. Oh, we express that in what we call our five M's. And this is really the backbone of this series, the outline of this series, our five M's. If you're a member here, you've heard us talk about this uh, from time to time. The first M is the message of the gospel. We considered that two weeks ago, meditating on what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done to redeem us from our sins, uh, to, to save us, to make of us a people for himself, and to bring glory to God in the process. The second M, which we considered last week, is we exist to show mercy to our neighbors. We want to be those good Samaritan neighbors who who see the need around us and who, in compassion, move toward those needs and serve people uh, who are in need. And and we want to be humble enough to recognize that we got needs too. We ain't Jesus, right? From time to time, we need our neighbors as we think they from time to time need us. Now, the M's that we'll get to next week and the week after are uh, we, we seek to multiply church leaders and church plants. We're going to hear about that next week as we ordain uh, two new leaders in this church, our brother Andrew Nichols and Jahil Richards, and as we think about planting a new congregation in Northeast D.C. I remember the mission statement is from the four corners of the block right here in Anacostia to the four corners of the globe. And so our last M, if you will, is sending missionaries. We want to send people with this gospel message to establish uh, churches where Christ is not known. Well, this morning we're right in the middle, our third end, which in many ways is where the rubber meets the road. It's in many ways where all of this kind of takes shape and takes, takes, takes sort of flesh, if you will. And that M is the shepherd to maturity. The shepherd to maturity. And let me tell you a little bit about where the burden, well, let's just get into the text. I'm, I'm, I'm a little excited this morning. So look with me in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, and we'll let the excitement come out during the midst of the sermon. So Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, and I'm going to read down to Titus chapter 2, uh, ending in verse 10. Titus 1, verse 10. If you're using the Bibles that we provided, that's on page 998. If you're new to the Bible, praise the Lord. It's always all of us have at some point been new to the Bible. Uh, When you hear me say chapter number, that's the big number on the page. And you hear me say verse number, that's the small number. So Titus chapter 1, big number. Verse 10, small number. This is what God's Word says. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, 
especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Let me give you the context here. The Apostle Paul is writing to a pastor named Titus, whom he has left in an island nation, a small island nation called Crete. Verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1 really give us the context in which Titus is called the pastor. I want you to notice three things about that context. Number one, the false teachers that are there, the the false preachers that are in that context. You see, they are corrupt men, verse 10, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And they also have a corrupt message. You see there, they are adding circumcision to the gospel. They're saying you need something more than Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. You need to add something to that and to your faith in that if you're going to be saved. And in this case, it's circumcision. They got a false message here. And they've got a corrupt motive. Did you see that in verse 11? They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. These are the original prosperity preachers. They got gain in mind, not holiness. And you see the consequence there in verse 11? This is important to our sermon. They are upsetting whole families. False teaching is not a victimless crime. False teaching upsets and hurts the family. Well, not only were there false preachers there, but they were fallen people in Crete. And you see that as you continue to read in verse 12 and 13 there. Notice there, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Boy, that's heavy, isn't it? 
That's one of their own, Paul says. Then Paul gives his testimony. He's, man, that's true. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you ever met a Cretan? Man, that's, that's true right there. These are fallen people. Now, now notice down in verse 15 how he sums this up. He says there, their minds and their consciences are defiled. In other words, both their desires and their thoughts and their very notion of right and wrong is polluted and twisted. So far fallen, so far gone, so far corrupted by sin, that this is sort of the reputation of the whole nation. They're, fallen, they're false preachers and fallen people. And notice the third thing about this context. There are fake professions. Verse 16. Do you see it there? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's Crete. And that's America. That's Crete. And that's every country on the planet. That's Crete. And that's Beverly Hills. And that's Wall Street. And that's Washington, D.C. That's Crete. And that's where the, that, that describes the neighborhoods of the wealthy of this world. And it describes the neighborhood of the poor. All gospel ministry happens in a Cretan context. Some contexts are airbrushed. And some contexts are obviously broken. God sends Titus not to the airbrushed broken. <laughs> he sends Titus to the obviously broken. God has an intent for those who are in a Cretan context. And we got all kinds of names for those contexts. We call them hoods. We call them ghettos in, 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 in Brazil. You call them favelas in South Africa. They're called townships. Uh, they're called barrios in Spanish-speaking America. Everywhere on this planet are Cretan contexts. And really, there isn't a context that isn't Cretan. Some are airbrushed and some are obvious. And we exist as a church because we believe God has called us to an obviously broken context filled with beautiful people made in his image who need to know him. It's great that people plant churches in gentrified neighborhoods and redeveloped neighborhoods and, and plush suburbs. It's great that people plant churches in parts of the cities that have kind of come back. Where are the saints who go to the neglected parts? The overlooked parts, the parts with reputations, and the kinds of reputations that make even Christians stay away. That's to our shame. We are called to this neighborhood and the people in this neighborhood because they're broken, but they're also beautiful because God loves them and he has purposed that they would hear the gospel and they would bring, he would bring them to himself and he would make them his own people, a new people who are not Cretans, but Christians. And the question is, beloved, how do fallen people in broken places like Crete become upright people that live whole lives that please God? How does that transformation happen? 
What goes on to take a Cretan who's always a liar, an evil beast, a lazy glutton, and, and is defiled and is unfit for any good work? All those hard but true things that are said of these people in this text. What goes on to take them from that condition to make them people who honor and please God and live in such a way that they are good for every good thing? Answer. Gospel discipleship what we have called shepherding to maturity. That's what joins the end of chapter 1 with what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And what I want to do in the rest of this time is give you eight statements about gospel discipleship that sort of package in what we mean when we talk about shepherding to maturity. When we hear us talk about maturity, we're talking about these eight things at least from Titus chapter 2, verse 1. We'll spend the bulk of our time on, I think, that fourth or fifth one. We'll move more quickly through the others. You ready? Hmm. You ready? Anybody out there? Y'all left already? Wait for it, brother. Give a benediction. Number, (laughs) Number one, number one, the gospel produces a certain lifestyle. The gospel produces a certain lifestyle. I get that from verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords, what accords, what accords, what goes along with sound doctrine. The word sound in the the phrase sound doctrine means healthy. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. So Paul is calling this pastor to commit himself to healthy teaching But notice, he doesn't just say teach sound doctrine. He says teach what accords with sound doctrine, what grows out of sound doctrine, the life that flows from healthy teaching. Often Paul uses this phrase sound doctrine in his letters as a synonym for the gospel itself. He's saying here there is a life that goes along with this message. And you teach people not just the message, but you teach them also how to live the life that goes along with the message. And what's the message? Very simply, the gospel is a a word that means good news. The gospel is this message that God is holy. He's infinitely holy. There's nothing wrong or imperfect or dark in him. In him is no darkness at all, the Bible says. And God created us, which means he owns us, which means we owe him. We owe him our lives, our obedience, our love as the one who made us and the one who owns us. But something tragic has happened. We have all become sinners. We have all rebelled against the God who made us. We have all rejected the design that he has for our lives. We've all refused to give him the obedience that he deserves as our creator and our Lord. That's what the Bible calls sin. And sin has done devastating things. It has broken this world. That's the only reason why a creek exists. It has broken this world, it has broken us, and it has broken our relationship with God such that in, if we're sinners, we are separated from God. And, and more than that, God is angry with us because of our sin. This holy God will judge us for our sin. And here's the good part. This holy God 
is also a loving God. Infinitely loving. Wondrously merciful. Amazingly gracious. And do you know what he did for us sinners? God the Father sent his only begotten son into the world. Dressed him in our humanity. Called him to obey him in our place. To be righteousness for us. And then sacrificed him on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That judgment we deserve, the Son of God suffered in our place. He was crucified and buried and on the third day raised from the grave. And in that resurrection, as God raises him, God is saying to the world, his sacrifice did it. His sacrifice is accepted. I raised my son. I, I approve of him. I, I, I accept him. And everyone who trusts in him is accepted along with him. And so now God calls everyone to respond to this message in two ways. In repentance from sin, and by placing their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus Christ as their God and their Savior. And that message is offered to every creature, great and small. And you hear this morning, and you don't hear anything else in the rest of this sermon. Hear this. You may come to know God, have all your sins forgiven, be righteous in Jesus Christ, and live forever in God's love as you were intended. Repent and believe. And that's the result. And you want to know more about that? Continue to listen to the sermon. You want to know more about that? Talk to the Christian friend who brought you. We would love nothing more than to just patiently talk with you about your questions and help you understand this message. This is why we exist. Now that message, beloved, Issues forth in a certain lifestyle, in a way of living. And that's what Paul is coming to address in his text in verses uh, 1 to 10. This, this lifestyle, this contrast really to the false teaching and the unsound doctrine that was upsetting entire households there in Crete. Which brings us to our second point then. That lifestyle, this is obvious, must be taught and learned. It must be taught and learned. I get this from at least three comments in Titus. Look back at Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Or start, let's start at chapter 2, verse 1, right? He says it right there. But as for you, teach. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Christian teaching is vital to Christian living. And you back up a little bit in chapter 1, look there in verse 13, where he says there, in the midst of talking about those false teachers and the false lifestyles that they lead to, he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's another aspect of teaching is rebuking. But back up even further, chapter 1, verse 9, look at what he says here, talking about the qualifications for Christian leaders, for elders and pastors. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That's the gospel. So that, what? He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must be a two-fisted man, able both to instruct positively in sound doctrine and the life that goes with it, and able also to set a defense and to guard that life and that truth with the other hand. 
To teach and rebuke. Rebuke is just another word for confrontation and correction. Notice here, rebuke is a, is a sharp disapproval of, of wrong behavior. And we, we all understand this, don't we? If we've got children and we see little children, they, I don't know why, but they get fascinated with light sockets. They head over to the light socket. You know, they, they, they pour all the water from their sippy cup on their hand and they want to go put their finger in the light, in the light socket. What, what do you do? And some of us, we, we tap their hands. Say, Stop that. Don't do that. That's rebuke. And that is admonishment. That's warning. That's a, that's a sharp correction. And the pastors in chapter 1, verse 9 are called to do that from time to time in the culture in which we minister. Now, if you're excited about rebuking somebody, you probably need to pump the brakes. Right? Right? Some people are all rebuke all the time. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You know, that's not what Paul has in mind here. That's not what he's going after here, right? The effect of that kind of thing is condemnation and legalism and hypocrisy. Rebuke is one part of teaching, but it's assigned here in this text to the elders, right? And notice something else. Paul asked to rebuke instruction or positive teaching. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, but. In other words, Paul is saying to Titus, you're not to be like those false teachers I was just talking about in 10 to 16. There's a contrast between you and them, between your teaching and their teaching. The difference is their teaching leads to defilement, and your teaching is meant to lead to godliness. As for you, Titus, teach. Add to your rebuke instruction. In fact, the bulk of your ministry will be instruction. Positive, organized, systematic teaching. Going from Cretan to Christian does not happen by osmosis, beloved. And beloved, if nobody can ever rebuke us or correct us, there's no way for us to grow as we ought. If we're too lazy to apply ourselves and to learn, then we'll not be good students in the school of Christ. If we keep listening to, listening to a, a Cretan conscience and a Cretan mind, then we will not know the maturity that God has designed for us. Christian teaching and Christian learning are vital to Christian living. And this is why we're called disciples. It's just another word for student. And this is what we're aiming to do. Make disciples of Jesus Christ. Student learners following Christ. This brings us to the third thing. This lifestyle applies to old and young, male and female. You see that there in Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, 2 to 6. Paul there first talks to the older men in verse 2 and the older women in verse 3. Verse 4, his attention shifts to the younger women. Not in verse 6, he talks to the younger men. Christianity is not an old person's religion. It's not your grandmama's religion. And Christianity is not a young hipster religion. Right? It's not that dude in plaid with the goatees religion. That's why I shaved so I can make that point. (laughs) Christianity is a religion that calls all people of all ages and both genders to to come follow Christ. So what this means is we do not age out of gospel life. 
we age deeper into it. There is something about old age that tempts a person to start coasting, taking it easy, taking things for granted. Or that tempts a person to say, well, I'm too old for all that now. That's not what this text holds out for older saints. It's not what the Bible holds out for older saints. Write this down and look at it later. Psalm 92, verses 13 and 14. It says there that the righteous are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. See, we want to be a church family where the older persons among us flourish and bloom like ripened fruit trees. We want to be a church family where the older persons are seen as vital to our mission. Because in this text, the bulk of the teaching ministry doesn't actually fall on Titus the pastor. It falls on the older persons in the congregation who are teaching the younger persons in the congregation. That's critical. That means, beloved, if you regard yourself as an older person, God has ministry for you to do. He has a purpose for your life. If you're an older person looking for a church where you can retire and, and be put out the pastor, we ain't it. We ain't it. You've not come to a rest home. You've come to a rescue mission. And we need you. And we desire you to play your part. And we're not too young for this gospel lifestyle either. We start early in it. There's something about being young that tempts a person to think, I've got time. Let me have some fun first. I don't need to be all that serious. Beloved, that's not the Bible's goal for how you use your youth. Not at all. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. Hear, hear these words from the Bible. It says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Oh, young woman, in your youth, oh, teenager or uh, pre-adolescent, middle schooler, rejoice in the Lord in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, live in a youthful way apart from God, God will bring you into judgment. It's not that your youth is this period where you sow wild oats and do whatever and it doesn't really count and later you can get serious. No, beloved, God is watching you right now and has purposes for you right now. So Psalm 71 verse 5 gives young people a better vision and purpose. This is what it says. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. That's the testimony we want for our children. That's, that's what's happening over there in children's ministry right now. We're trying to pass along that testimony to our children. That's, what, that's the hope we have as parents, that we are trying to pass along this testimony that they have known from infancy the scriptures that is able to make them wise unto salvation, and they can proclaim that you, O oh Lord, from my youth were my trust and not drift from that by God's grace. See, maturity in the gospel lifestyle is for young and old alike. It's for men and women, boys and girls. The church must not be a good old boys club. The church must not be a ladies tea parlor with them little lace doilies and stuff. <laughs> men and women alike are to grow in Christ-like maturity. We know this because of that word likewise in verse 3 and verse 6. What Paul says of older men is in principle true of 
older women, what he says of, of older women is to be transferred to younger women. And likewise, younger men are to be taught these things. But it's not one size fits all. Which brings us to the fourth point here. This gospel lifestyle has unique features based on age and gender. Has unique features based on age and gender. And here's where I want to spend a little bit of time. Men and women are different by God's design. Praise God. Praise God. The world would be a miserable place if it were only men. All the sisters are quietly going, amen, amen. (laughs) There are things specific to our respective gender that God intends us to know and to do in this lifestyle. There are expressions of God's character that are uniquely associated with what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. So while the things listed in verses 2 to 6 are in a broad sense alike, moving toward maturity, the application and the expression are different along the lines of gender and age. So let's take what Paul has written here, beginning in verse 2. Older men. What do you you see when you read verse 2? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. What do you imagine you read those words? What picture comes to mind? I see, a, I see a, a real man. He has gravitas and seriousness about him. He's not macho and flashy. That's just worldliness. He, he's, not a, he, he, he's not a man that's on the corner all loud and lewd. I see a man respected by others. And not that street respect, which is about don't mess with me or I'll buy your mama that little black dress. That, that, ain't, that ain't what's happening here. He's simply not the kind of guy that people act foolish around. He walks into the room and without saying a word or making any kind of threat, people straighten up. He calls people into this higher self, into this dignity. And though he's respected, notice he's also kind. He has a sound or healthy faith and a healthy understanding of love. People seek him out for wisdom and help. I see a man who's been through some things, but notice he's he's trusting and walking with the Lord still. He is steadfast. You can't shake him. You can't rattle him. You can't distract him from his God. That's what older men are to be. Notice the older women. What do you see when you read verse 3? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Again, that word likewise tells us that in a very general sense, he's still dealing with the, the sort of apex of Christian character. And so he sums it up with one word with the older women. They are to be reverent. That means they love God and take God seriously. They they are like children before their parents. It's just adoring respect. They love God. They serve God. They take Him seriously. And that's why they're not running their mouths or running the street. Did you see that there? Not given to, they're not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
It's very sad to see older women or older men out in the community who seem to be chasing the folly of perpetual youth. Who, who want to shop at Forever 21. That ain't for everybody. It ain't for most young people, you know. That's just something, if you know, it's just something out of place to see an older man or an older woman who's supposed to be marked with a regal, royal, distinguished bearing attempting to be hip hoppers. I mean, you look at it and you're like, ooh, you're a little too old for that. Instinctively, don't we say, you're too old for that. Oh, the, Bible, the Bible here is celebrating the dignity of old age. It is celebrating the gravitas of, of growing up. It is celebrating the, the weightiness and the beauty of, of becoming seniors in the community, especially in the church. And there's nothing quite as beautiful as, a, as an older woman, regal gray hair, a crown of gray, carrying herself in such a way that everybody knows she's one of the mothers of the church. And everybody knows that this woman is dignified, that this woman, this woman has esteem for herself and others, and, and this woman is a source of, of wisdom and care and instruction. And Paul here has a vision. The Bible has given us a vision where the church is supposed to be full of them. These are the virtuous women, notice, who are to teach what is good. Another word for virtue here. These are the Proverbs 31 women manufacturing other Proverbs 31 women as they teach and train them in what is good. We believe that our ministry here at Pastors, we believe that our ministry here to the older women of this congregation is as critical as our training men for ministry or our public proclamation of the word. It's that important. And so we dedicate ourselves to it. And this is why one of the first things we began to do as pastors is to have a regular small group monthly meeting with the older and some of the older women of the church to teach them theologically, to encourage them devotionally, and to help them practically live out this vision here for their lives. If the truth be told, the most neglected part of most pastors' job descriptions in the Christian church today is right here, training older women to live this way. Man, older women are meant to be treasured. But then he goes on to talk a little bit about the younger women. What's it look like for younger women? Well, God answers that right here in verses 4 to 5. The older women are to so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Now keep in mind the result of the false preacher's ministry back in chapter 1. Remember what it was? They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teaching for shameful gain destroys families. The gain could be financial. There are preachers who prey upon women for financial means. The gain could be the growth of their congregations. There are preachers who will not touch verses 4 and 5 in order to keep some women happy in order to keep the women in their church because they're not reaching men. 
There are preachers who teach what they ought not because they think doing so will simply grow their church. There are many shameful games that motivate false teachers to teach things that end up destroying families. That's why Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 11, in the voice of Don Corleone, they must be silenced. (laughs) And listen, beloved, listen, listen. We are not surprised that false teaching tears up families, or we shouldn't be. Satan from the beginning has had the strategy of twisting God's word, aiming it right at husband and wife. That's the story of the garden, isn't it? That slithering serpent speaks those seductive words to Eve. What is he aiming at? Adam and Eve, our first parents, their marriage, their walking together under the lordship of God. He's upsetting whole families, and that's what he's been up to from the beginning. And this is why when you come to verses 4 and 5, I know, sisters, don't raise your hand. I know there are a few of you who read verses 4 and 5, and you bristle a little bit because it's got the S word in it, submission. And why is there only one thing for men in verse 6? We'll get to that. Listen, listen. If you read verses 4 and 5, and you immediately think, about sexism and the oppression of women and about abuse and those things. You're not wrong necessarily to think about those things because those things have happened in the name of God. That's not what we're pushing here. We want to oppose that. We, we are not in any way supportive of the oppression of women. But if you read those verses and there's not something beautiful and tantalizing to you, What you're experiencing is the evidence of the effectiveness of Satan in corrupting our thinking about the family. What could be more beautiful than a loving husband and wife delighting in each other from their youth? Raising their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And by God's grace, seeing their children become mighty oaks in the faith, walking with the Lord too. And and organizing their homes in such a way that that husbands lead and protect and provide and and wives honor and submit and come alongside in the the organization of the home and the running of the home in such a way that, that that most intimate of places in human existence, the home and the family, becomes the sweetest, richest, most flourishing place that we ever go. I think God wants us to read these verses and say, this is beautiful. I want that despite all the problems and all the aberrations and all of the perversions and and all of the the failures. I I can see the beauty of this vision and, and I want that. This is how you know God's word is having an effect on your heart. This becomes the beauty. We see it for the beauty that it is. Now, real talk. The the overwhelming amount of pastoral counseling and care is on these issues. Described here in verses 4 and 5. This is my considered pastoral experience from the last 12 years. 
the, old, the number one reason that people come see me is because they're hurting in these areas. He ain't acting right. She ain't acting right. Kids ain't acting right. House ain't operating the way it's supposed to operate. This is where the enemy likes to fight his battle the most. And this is the thing. This is how subtle he is. He, he convinces us that if we turn away from this to sort of go get some other wisdom that seems better to us, then those problems go away. Beloved, listen, turning away from God's word doesn't make the problem go away. It makes your experience of the problem worse. Because instead of focusing on the thing that's really at the heart and the root, the enemy blinds and distracts and he takes advantage. And, and real talk, again, older ladies, this is why you're so critical to our lives as a church. Because Matt and Thabiti and Jeremy and Andrew and Jahil, we real different brothers. But we got this one thing in common. We men. <laughs> we ain't never been women. And, and we ain't going to be women. Shame you have to say that today. We ain't going to be women. <laughs> there's a particularity to God's call on your life and his design for you. And there's a particularity to your experience that actually requires you to be discipled by other women. For you to be counseled by other women. Those older women who teach the things in verses 4 and 5, they've been through this. They know how to love a husband and they don't act right. They know how to raise children when children are going off the rails. They, they've been through that season. They, they know they've made some mistakes and they've learned some good things about how to run their home and to be busy at home and to have the home as a, as a sort of major foundational central outpost of their life and their ministry. You're wanting to learn that. I can't teach you that. I can teach you in principle, but not through experience. I will open God's word to you and I will exhort you. But you need a woman in your life, an older woman, to teach you these things. It's vital. It's vital. And here's the other thing I know, real talk about a pastor. We will endeavor, if we're faithful, to teach you the whole counsel of God and we'll teach you it as best as we can. But we're sinners too. And here's what's going to happen sometimes. Every once in a while, that man will sort of bend this thing just a little bit in favor of men. See, those are battles we have to fight in our own hearts as pastors. For this thing to work right, we've got to do it the way God said do it. And real talk, man, we are, as a church, in a black community because we have a special and particular concern for this black community. As my brother prayed earlier in the prayer, we love all people and all God's people. And we welcome all God's people. And we seek the salvation of all people. But we are undistracted when it comes to being here in Anacostia and loving Anacostia for who she is. That means we have to deal with over 300 years of systematic oppression and racism, and slavery, and Jim Crow, and over-incarceration, and over-criminalization, those things are destroying our families. We've lived with a relentless assault on the family. 
And you can see the scars and you can taste the scars. You know the scars. And we add to that our own sin and our own misguidedness. And, and, and we add to that the high levels that the research tells us of mistrust between men and women in our community. And there's no way for us to be faithful to God's word and no way for us to be faithful to love our community if we don't teach this. And if we don't hold the good life out as it really is, good, hard, but good, hard, but worth it. The wonderful thing about Paul writing this letter to Titus in Crete and being specific about Crete and its characteristics is he's letting us know that Christianity is not an escapist religion. We're not pie in the sky, by and by, just sort of ignoring what's around us. No, we're in the world, for the world. We're in the community, for the community. We are immersing ourselves in all that's beautiful and all that's broken because we have a message of redemption and wholeness and healing. And we hear life that grows out of that message, which would be to the blessing of all people. When we first began talking about the five M's and sort of foundation of our church, I was, I was still in the Cayman Islands and thinking through Titus, God began to just bore Titus into my heart as the New Testament church planting epistle. And as I just read through Titus and read through Titus and read through Titus, things began to just kind of emerge as, as sort of hooks in this book. And those, those became our five M's. And the first way I expressed this M was really around manhood. Because it seems to me, and you can check me at the door and tell me if you're wrong, it seems to me that the assault in our communities on men, it, it's overwhelming. And it seems to me, and I know this, so if you come to me with a different opinion than this at the door, I'm going to check you, I'm going to rebuke you. <laughs> The research is clear. You pluck men out of families and communities and everybody does worse. Wives and mothers and women do worse. Children do worse. The community does worse. But you put a godly man, actually, if you put a good enough man into a home, who loves his woman, loves his wife, and loves his children, and everybody does better. Children do better in school. Families own more assets. Uh, women and husbands have better mental health and better physical health. All the scores go up on every dimension. And so my burden coming to this conversation was first framed as, we have got to reach black men. And I'll never forget sitting in Chelsea Smucker's house just across the street there, and that very first meeting that we had with the very first persons who were expressing interest in the church plant, we were visiting stateside for a little bit, and I'm going through the five M's, and I talked about men and reaching men, and my dear sister, Eli Schmucker, I don't know if she said it to Matt and I felt it, or if she said it to me and Matt felt it. She said, uh, what about the women? Oh. And focusing on men, I was in no way looking to overlook women. I am thoroughly convinced 
that churches are not as strong as they could be because women aren't discipled the way they ought to be. And we were trying to look, overlook women, and so we start reformulating and say, okay, this third M begins with men and women and, oh, okay, children and families. And, and then we started to talk about, okay, the third M would be marriage, but, but then I'm thinking about the context. Not everybody in the context is married, and there's a, there's a lot of hurt. You know, these words are, are so filled with our hurts, aren't they? And our longings and our pains. And I talk about, what is Titus 2 really about? Well, in the broadest sense... Without escaping the particular sense, it's about all of us maturing and growing up in Christ. And we got to do that wherever we find people. Right? And so this is how we express it in our, in our Constitution. Our third M is expressed this way. We, we are committing ourselves to helping men, women, and families mature according to God's complementary, complementary design for men and women in their own households, and in the church, which is the household of God. That's a major part of what we're here for. And without meaning any unkindness whatsoever, if you're not here for that, you're either in the wrong place or you're going to have to remember our calling. Because this is a central part of what we're committed to, and we believe it's good. We believe it's right We believe it's beautiful because it comes from God's word. Now notice the young men. This gospel lifestyle applies to young men too. Verse 6, likewise teach younger men to be self-controlled. As I said before, I used to joke about this and say, you know, he had all these things for women to do because women are so competent. Look down at these young men. He's like, man, if you could just teach them rascal self-control, we'd be all right. And I used to joke about that, but as I stare at this phrase, this word self-control, it seems like to me Paul actually is getting to the heart of maturity. Have you noticed how that little phrase runs through this letter? So in chapter 1, verse 8, elders are only qualified if they're self-controlled. When he comes over to chapter 2, verse 2, the older men, the older men are to be self-controlled. Self-control is implicit in the older women when he talks about their reverent behavior. He makes it explicit again in uh, verse 5 when he talks about the list of things that younger women are to be. And now he comes down here to verse 6 and he says, likewise, younger men are to be self-controlled. And even when Paul talks about the gospel, if you look over at chapter 2 around verse 11 and 12, he says the grace of God has appeared, uh, that grace which brings salvation to all men. One of the things that grace teaches us is self-control. This, beloved, is at the heart of who we're to be as Christians, this virtue, this discipline. So I believe that if you reduce Christian maturity to only one main discipline or characteristic, self-control must be near the top of that list. Without self-control, then we are out of control. And if we are out of control, then we are vulnerable to every desire and idea that comes up. That's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that in a metaphor. Write this down. Proverbs 25, verse 28. The Bible says there, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, it's a man without self-control is already defeated by his enemies, a city broken into. And guess what? He's vulnerable to all the other attacks that come after that. That's what a person without self-control is like. 
Think of how many things take over our lives when we don't have self-control. This affects our spending and our finances. It affects our anger and violence. It affects our sexual lives. I mean, the man who lacks self-control will give himself to pornography. The man who spends more than he makes lacks self-control. The man who's always lusting after women, he lacks self-control. man who drinks and drugs himself nearly to death, he is out of control. The man who can't keep a job lacks self-control. Almost all the issues of a man's life, of a person's life, come back to this one thing of self-control. This fruit of the Spirit, this training of grace, is foundational to being a man, to being a woman, to being a leader. Without it, we're not men, we're not women, we're not leaders as God intends. Trying to think of how to illustrate this. Best I can do is an illustration that I'm stealing from Vody Balkan. Talks about the difference between men and boys, between the self-controlled and the mature, and the out of control and the immature. So you can tell the difference from when they pull up into the pull up to the stoplight. Maybe they're both driving similar cars. You know, a red Camaro Z, with a racing stripe. Pull up to the light. The young guy pulls up to the older guy. What's the young guy do? Look over there, revs the engine. You know, you want to run that thing? You want to race that thing? The light turns, the young man, older man pulls off at 15. That man and that young man in that car, he's really being controlled by the car. The rev of the engine, the power, the rumble of it, the idea of speed. He's not obeying the law. He's not obeying the speed limit. He's not obeying safe driving etiquette. But the self-controlled man has nothing to prove. Uh, Certainly ain't trying to win some petty race on a street, endangering everybody's lives in the car and outside the car. The self-controlled man is self-possessed. He takes himself by the collar and he leads himself in what's godly. Let me read this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a, it's a longish quote, but it's good. Stay, stay with me if you can. Lloyd-Jones says this, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You may say to your soul, why are thou cast down? What, what business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And when you must go on to remind yourself, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and, and what God has pledged himself to do. And having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people. And defy the devil and the whole world and say to this man, I shall, I shall yet praise him for the help of his face, who is also the health of my face and my God. The essence of this matter is to understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. 
Speak to him, condemn him, upbraid him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know instead of listening placidly to him and allow him to drag you down and depress you. But that is what he will always do if you allow him to be in control. Beloved, it is essential, men, that we learn self-control. Women, that we learn self-control. That we learn that self-control that keeps us in our lane as men and women. It is essential to Christian living and Christian witness that we handle ourselves and take hold of ourselves and refuse ourselves those desires and those wants that do not come from God. That is how we mature. That is how we mature. So much more we're going to say, I would like to say. Let me move us on. We'll be, we'll be back to that. <laughs> the rest of the points more quickly. Number five, this lifestyle must be lived in tough contexts by once hardened people. Now that's obvious from everything we've said so far, so I won't, I won't belabor it. We see the context in chapter one. We see what these Cretans were. We see what they're to be now as Christians. Look down in verse nine as Paul begins to address slaves there. It, it, what, he, what this is teaching us in principle is that we must live this life no matter our circumstance. Now, the slavery that Paul is addressing in verse 9 is not like the world, new world slavery of the United States. It's not race-based. It's not perpetual. That is what Paul condemns in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, where he says that man-stealing is contrary to the gospel. The slavery here was often uh, produced by being a, a prisoner of war. It's produced by debt. Slaves had rights. They could marry freely. They could purchase property. All those kinds of things that were forbidden. So he's not addressing the context of the United States in the 16, 17, 1800s, all right? But the principle to draw here is even if you find yourself enslaved, you find yourself in a hard economic situation, you find yourself in a difficult social situation, we still must live out this gospel. We must live in a way that accords to this gospel, We don't get a pass on living for Christ just because our lives are hard. That's a hard truth, but it is true. We must still teach what accords with sound doctrine, even though we face almost overwhelming situations. You know what it will be for us? The temptation will be for us as a church in our community as we, by God's grace, begin to reach more and more people in our community with obvious brokenness. The temptation for us will be to say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Life is hard. You ain't got to live this way. You know, that's, that's kind of middle class, white suburban. No, 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 no. It's Bible. And there's an opposite temptation. Temptation to say, oh, I see the Bible. I see its standard. You need to do this tomorrow. You need to step up tomorrow. You're not welcome here. Both of those are errors, beloved. That kind of permissiveness is an error. And that kind of prudishness is an error. In the middle is Grace. Grace teaches us. We think about it from a gracious standpoint. We know we need to come. Here's the formula. We need teaching plus time plus trust in God to get the fruit he wants in people's lives. Teach God's word. Take your time and let the word do the work. Trust that God will do the fruit bearing, not us. And we'll see the results that we want. 
where God wants to produce them. All right. So we need to teach this lifestyle, even in our context. Number six, this lifestyle must be lived at church, in the home, and the workplace. Another word for that simply is integrity. We need to be the same persons everywhere we go. We're not to be Sunday morning only Christians, and then Monday through Saturday hellions. We're not supposed to be pious in the, in the gathering of the assembly, and then be serpent-like in the workplace or in the home. We've got to be the same wherever we go. And this is why this text addresses Christians and Christian pastors in the church. This is why it centers on the home in verses 4 and 5. And this is why he comes to bond servants and slaves in verse 9. Everywhere we go, we're to live out this faith. That's integrity. He uses that word in verse 7 when he writes to, to Titus as a pastor. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Number seven, this lifestyle defends the gospel. It is not the gospel, but it defends the gospel. And Paul says that three times. In some ways, this is sort of the major point that he's driving at in terms of how we engage the people around us, right? So the reason young men are to learn what they're to learn is so that, verse 5 at the end there, the word of God may not be reviled. The reason the pastor is to live the way he's to live is, verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. The reason slaves are to be submissive to their masters is verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you see? How we live affects how others see the word of God. The maturity of our lives defends the message we believe. This is how we silence opponents. It's how the world gains, it's how we gain respect in the world if they're ever going to respect us, which isn't our goal. It's how the teaching about God our Savior becomes beautiful, even in a Cretan context. We live out this word, and that has a way of defending the word. Our apologetics or our defense of the gospel can't be done in words alone. It must be done through the power of a transformed life built upon the word of God. I'm inclined to think, beloved, that there are a good number of professing Christians who should stop talking and arguing so much and start living better especially among us reform types. The Cretans, chapter 1, verse 16, they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. They were detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But the Christians, those who, who, who know Jesus Christ, look at chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Christ gave himself for them to redeem us from all of that, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see the contrast? That's the difference the gospel makes. Our lives defend our God and his word. Number eight, this lifestyle is a picture, really, of regal, beautiful, strong maturity at every age. I wish I had words to talk about this that match the beauty of this text. I, I don't. I don't know how to communicate to you the sweetness of decades of marriage with someone who loves you and whom you love. 
with someone with whom you have suffered things and rejoiced in things. Someone who's had you in ways that nobody else could have you. Who stand with you and care for you. I wish I could communicate the beauty of walking in God's design for us as men and as women. The the freedom that comes from just operating in the boundaries that he sets. The, The sureness that comes from rejecting everything beyond those boundaries. The safety of that. I wish I could communicate the the life that just springs up in the soul as we draw close to God in the gospel, as we walk in the plans that he has for us. I'm too poor a preacher. Maybe your imagination is better than my words. Meditate on this. Dream about this. Want this life with joy. Seek this life with gladness. Pursue it with passion. Let every sacrifice be a victory and nothing to you. Let every step be an achievement and advancement to you. Let every setback be met with grace and resolve. Let let every brokenness be mended. Let, Let every wound be healed. This is life as it was meant to be. And it's yours, Christian. It's yours. Not even in your own strength, but by God's strength and God's grace. It's yours. Lean into it. Delight in it. Rest in it. Savor it and enjoy it. This is good. I want to conclude really quickly with three sets of application questions. We want this to go home with us. We want this to live in us. Three sets of application questions on a professional level, on a personal level, on a pastoral level. And the point of these applications is not uniformity. It's not that we all become the same person. That's not the goal of this. The point of these questions is for us to sit with God personally and and understand as we commune with him how he wants to work these things in us as his own individual children. So first, the personal level. All of this requires teaching one another. And so two basic questions to pray about and think about. Who will I ask to disciple me in these things? Who will I ask to disciple me in these things? Now, don't everybody go to Pastor Jahil. We've got to spread this out. Who will I ask to teach me these things? And number two, who will I shepherd or encourage or teach toward maturity in Christ? And how will I teach them? Will it be one-on-one, small group? Think it through. This is a team sport. We need each other. On a professional level. So ask yourself, how will I live out a faithful Christian witness in my work or job? What does that look like for you? Now, chances are, 
it doesn't look like standing up on your desk in the middle of the day and preaching a sermon. Okay, that's, that's probably going to get you fired. That man pay you to do a job, do the job. And that's part of your witness. Colossians 3, right? Around verse 23, do everything you do as unto the Lord, right? Knowing your reward comes from him. So how will you live out a faithful Christian witness in your job, on your job, in your workplace? And, and are there any things that we need to fix about our attitudes or behaviors at work so that, as the text says, in everything we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? In other words, here's the opportunity. We get to go to work and make God look beautiful. How do we do that? What things must we repent of? What things must we confess? I'll never forget one day the Lord so convicted me about a way that I was treating a new boss. I didn't, I didn't really respect her. I didn't, I didn't think that um, she knew our, our, our business, and she didn't, and um, she wasn't good with people, and uh, she didn't mess with me too much because I'm a big brother, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> And um, I'll never forget, man. You remember Joyce? I'll never forget. I come home just bitter, complaining, murmuring, just, just in sin. And the Lord convicted me. And the Lord said, now, on Monday morning, when you go to the office, don't, don't even go to your desk. You go straight to Joyce's office, and you sit down across from Joyce, and you confess your sin to her. Confess your bitterness Confess the way you've been talking about her at home. Don't be leaving nothing out. Don't make it general. I was like, Lord, all that? You know. <laughs> and, and by God's grace, and pastor ain't no superhero. I, 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 I take it you know that, right? So, so by God's grace, I go in the office the mo- that Monday morning, and I disobeyed a little bit. I put my stuff down on the desk. Then I went to her, then I went to her office. I said, you know, Joyce, can I talk to you? She said, sure. And she goes over, she's kind of waggled when she walked in. So she waggled over to the desk and, and, I, and I said, I said, um, I'm not, I'm just not meant to be at her expense. Just, I was explaining that wiggle. That's what that was. <laughs> and so I, I sat down, I sat down, I said, Joyce, I said, um, I need to ask you to forgive me. She looked kind of puzzled. So for what? And I said, you know, this is what's been going on in my heart. These have been my thoughts toward you. I have not submitted to your leadership the way I'm supposed to submit to your leadership. I've not honored God by honoring you. And I, I just sort of rolled the thing out for about five or six minutes. And she said, okay. <laughs> Didn't know what to do with it. That's okay. That's okay. I trust that if we repent in our workplaces, that's going to speak something about the God we love. And, and how we intend to serve it. Right? So what might that look like for you? Anything to repent of? Anything to change? Anything to declare in the workplace? Finally, on the pastoral level. So something for the congregation, something for the pastors. Congregation, what pastoral teaching or care do we need in order to grow and to be shepherded toward maturity? You know your lives better than I do. Now, I trust that in the preaching of God's word here from Sunday to Sunday, the Holy Spirit sometimes finds you out. And God speaks to you personally about some things that that he needs to speak to you about. But you know what, beloved? It would be good if you would let us know as pastors the honest state of your soul and the honest need of your soul. When we ask you how you're doing, we, we really aren't looking for the cliche pat answer. 
We are men who must give an account for your soul. In other words, God's going to judge us for how we shepherd you. Tell us the truth. Tell us honestly. Lay it bare. I can assure you, you're not going to surprise us. I've been doing this too long to be surprised about your life. I know that as God's people, we in process. We ain't there yet, and we ain't going to be there till he comes. But I also know this, it's the hiding of our struggles that doubles our struggles. So what do you need to tell us about your life so that we can better shepherd you individually and shepherd this congregation as a whole? All right? Now know something. Know something. One of our children who shall remain nameless, he sometimes thinks... <laughs> At one point, I think he sometimes had the idea that if he... He's an honest kid. I love that about him. He's an honest kid. He tells us the truth, mainly. And sometimes he seems to think that if he tells us the truth and says, I'm sorry, that's kind of the end of it. Right? I'm sorry is a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? And we disabuse him of that notion. Now know this. I want to be honest with you. When you tell us these things, we're not judging you. But we may need to correct you. We may need to rebuke you sharply, as the text says. We may need to warn you of where that thing leads, right? We are doing that for your soul, not against your soul. We're doing that for your health, not for your hurt. All right? So be honest, and then let us be honest. Let us shepherd you. Okay? That's the congregation. What do we need? Pastors, what else must we teach and model so that this vision of maturity in the home, in the church, in the workplace is advanced? So brothers, let us think together about what we need to do in order to stimulate more teaching, more good works, more integrity, more dignity, more soundness of speech, so that you guys, our church, our, our sheep, flourish in the things of Christ. Well, let's stop here. And let me stop by simply reading another passage of Scripture that I think hangs over all that we've said here and all that we're trying to do as a church. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. You can turn there if you like, or you can read it later. But get the vision. See the picture. The Bible says there that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's to do good works that we talked about last week, right? We meant to equip you for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ until we all, all of us together, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what maturity is defined as, as the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, and here's how we do it, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord do that to us, in us, and through us. Let's pray together. Oh my Lord, this has been a long sermon and a long service. I say that not because length of time in your word is a failure. I say that because the enemy would look to snatch the seed from our hearts. And he would use our fatigue and he would use our hunger and he would use any little stirring around us. He would use our hurts and he would use our thoughts to turn us away from your word. Oh, Father, do not let him. Holy Spirit, do not let him. Drive your word deep in our hearts. Cause it to root and to sprout and to bear much fruit that remains. Oh, Lord, we praise you that we are not what we used to be. But we're also not yet what we're going to be. We are growing by your grace and we wish to grow more. Shepherd us into maturity as men, as women, as boys and girls, as your children, members of your household. And do that by your word. Help us to keep your word in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final song this morning is a...